Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, proud partner in personalized medicine, developing tailored treatments for cancer patients. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anise Chagpar and Stephen Gore. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about cancer genomics and precision medicine with Dr. Mark Gerstein. Dr. Gerstein is Albert L. Williams Professor of Biomedical Informatics and Professor of Molecular Biophysics and Biochemistry, of Computer Science, and of Statistics and Data Science at the Yale School of Medicine. Dr. Gore is a Professor of Internal Medicine and Hematology at Yale and Director of Hematologic Malignancies at the Yale Cancer Center. We hear a lot about precision medicine and genomics, and I think a lot of our you know listeners may not really understand a lot about that. So um, maybe you can just start off by telling us sort of what what that's all about. Sure. Well, so there's the term uh, precision medicine, and then there's precision medicine specifically related to cancer. I mean, the general idea of precision medicine is to kind of target one's uh, treatment very much to the individual, and in particular the individual variations that a person has in their genome. Now, for many diseases, these would be sort of our germline variations that we have from when we're born. But germline is, is what we're born with, basically. Yeah, ger- what people think of as genetics, right? That's right. Ger- our germline inherited. genome is what we've uh, gotten through the germline, through our parents, and that's what we normally think of uh, when we think of the genome. But in cancer, uh, the, the genome in specific cells gets kind of messed up, and we acquire mutations uh, through our life, and these are referred as somatic mutations. And so in precision oncology or precision medicine applied to cancer, uh, we look at these particular pattern of um, uh, somatic mutations, and then we would imagine that a therapy could be tailored uh, to them uh, specifically. So let me see if I've got this right. So if I were thinking about um, this germline or innate genetics, that might determine if I'm likely to get hypertension or perhaps which kind of hypertension I might be prone to get and what drugs potentially could be best used if I had hypertension. Um, and that that's kind of one set of things. But in this cancer thing, the cancer cells have sort of gotten whacked out in terms of their DNA, and there's there's mutations that are different than than what's innately in the person. Is that right? Correct. That that's that's the the kind of canonical difference between the germline and the somatic. But there is one little caveat. There's also, of course. Uh, you know, germline uh, mutations that you might have that give you a proclivity to acquiring cancer. So famous ones are like the BRCA1 and BRCA2, which are germline mutations that, you know, give one a greater chance of acquiring, say, breast cancer. Um, so in, can- in cancer, there's both germline and somatic, and there's actually an in- people talk about an interplay between these two. Gotcha. And the uh, and those germline mutations like the BRCA mutations in breast cancer, that mutation persists in the cancer, right? Uh, that's correct. So, so the way to think about it is we, in the cancer, the cancerous cell, we have all of our normal germline variants, and on top of that, we have the somatic variants that that, the somatic variants that, that cell has acquired. Because obviously, if that BRCA mutation is in all of our cells, we're clearly not getting cancer in all of our cells, so that can't be enough for cancer Correct. in all of our cells, otherwise we'd be one big lump of cancer. 
Correct. I mean, the way to think of, I think, of a lot of the germline variants is they give you kind of proclivities uh, or uh, predispositions towards something, but they don't necessarily um, say you're going to get it. You know, they would, you know, increase the probability or if you had this particular mutation and you uh, received this kind of an environmental, um, you know, sort of inf inflict or, you know, you had a somatic mutation that sort of played in a certain way with your germline mu uh, mutation, you would maybe uh, contract cancer or contract disease. Mm -hmm. And does that in any way inform the kind of treatments you might be... Um that might be amenable to your cancer? Or? Sure. I mean, I think looking at the germline uh, is very important, uh, both when a person has cancer and also to prevent someone from having cancer. Normally, um, since germline mutations are carried within healthy people that, you know, go around and live normally, and they're also carried through a large population of people, they tend to have less... Um, damaging effects and less strong effects than somatic mutations. In general, somatic mutations, uh, particularly the strong drive, uh, cancer driver ones, tend to have stronger effects. You know, a few mutations really mess up the cell much more so than you'd see for, uh, in germline genomics. So those more driver somatic mutations might be better to target uh, potentially if you were going to treat that, if, if that were possible. Correct. I mean, you know, the sort of canonical types of these mutations, the people use a lot of, you know, lingo from there's like EGFR mutations, uh, P53 mutations, RAS mutations, whatever. And all, a lot of these type of mutations will sort of target signaling pathways and really mess them up in a very uh, dramatic way and, you know, cause, of course, the uncontrollable growth we have in cancer. We don't tend to have as strong an effect with germline mutations for the very fact that, like I said, with a germline mutation, the person obviously has to be alive, and they're living, and they're healthy, and it's also carried in many people, usually in the population, and they also have to be uh, healthy to pass it on and so forth. Well, one of the genes you just mentioned, P53, can be a germline mutation, right? Sure, that's correct. It I mean, what, let me just be precise. So the, um, there's the gene, which is a, a thing on the genome, a region on the genome, and then that gene it can, um, comprises many what's called nucleotide bases or bits of DNA, and any of them can be mutated in a variety of different ways. So a given gene, for instance, could have many different mutations, and it's often the case that uh, the different mutations will have different effects. Gotcha. So your, your titles, you know, seem to have a lot of computer science and statistics and data. What is it you actually do? Uh, good question. Good question. Um, well, I'm very interested, obviously, in the uh, the big data and the uh, analytics part, and that's you know what I really focus on. And you know, there's many uh, branches of life now that are really being, um, I think, revolutionized by this advent of collecting of large uh, scale data and mining it. And obviously, we see this in medicine and biology, and that's what I um, obviously focus on. But we also see it, you know, in the commercial world, you know, people talk all the time about, you know, the data economy in the world of, you know, Google, Amazon, Facebook, and how the collection of large amounts of information and mining is making these uh, commercial enterprises, you know, more effective. We see it, obviously, in, you know, um, intelligence, you know, the military and so forth has historically, of course, used this type of thing. And other branches of science uh, beyond biomedicine, of course, uh, collect large amounts of information and mine them. One, one, I think, unappreciated area, which is kind of interesting, is weather forecasting, you know, which really um, has to do with collecting tremendous amounts of information uh, from weather satellites, balloons, whatnot, and kind of fusing them together with physical models to make, you know, a prediction about what's going to happen tomorrow, you know, in the sky.
So I think that many of us, uh, you know, sort of get this idea that that there's a lot of data out there, and all we know in real life is that Facebook seems to know uh, my politics pretty well and offers me products and candidates and things like that that I can buy clickbait. And they're, they're pretty good because, you know, probably one in 25 things they offer me, I decide to like maybe order, which is probably says more about me than Facebook. But uh, so I, I understand that that happens and I – you know, it's it's mysterious to me how it happens and how quickly. And I, you know, I think you know similarly, Google when you're searching, you know, offers you different things. So, what really goes on? Like, you know, where is the data living? And some, yeah. so all the aggregated data is out there somewhere. What what happens? Well, the usual term, the usual jargon term people have is that the data is in the cloud. Yeah, you know, well, we know the, that. <laughs> that's like that's like the man behind the curtain in the Wizard of Oz, as far as I'm concerned. Right? Yeah. Well, I I think the 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 sort of notion is that you know we have all these computationally aware devices, you know, these are obviously like the iPhone or the the little watch that we might carry with us, but there are also, you know, sensors, you know, throughout um, one's house or, you know, on the street and so forth that are continuously uh, collecting data. And the notion is that somehow these data are kind of aggregated in um, some big data centers, you know, that these huge companies have. And they, you know, they they build statistical models, you know, sometimes very simple models about, you know, um, what you um, tend to buy, tend to want. I mean, the simple model would be, you know, if you obviously, if you buy a lot of, you know, um, stuff for your, you know, house, you know, well, maybe you might need some more. You might need some, you know, if you buy something for your roof, you might need something for your cellar. I'm mean, just making it up. But, yeah. you know, some sort of very simple-minded stuff like that. But sometimes it gets uh, more subtle. Um, and, you know, companies use this all the time. Now, obviously, I'm not doing this in a kind of commercial context in that way. But, you know, the sort of same simple-minded ideas can happen in science where we're collecting, you know, a lot of um, data and mining. Now, one of the key differences in science versus the commercial world is the data is not obviously coming from, um, you know, a bunch of iPhones or things like that. It, it's usually coming from these instruments that really s- just build huge data sets. And the two instruments that we really see the most in biomedicine um, collecting large amounts of data are uh, things that sequence the genome, you know, huge amounts of sequencing. You've probably also heard that we can sequence more and more cheaply. And what that really means is we can collect for a given dollar just more and more tremendous amounts of data. And, of course, there's also imaging. You know, there's a tremendous uh, boom in the uh, ability to image many different um, lens scales in uh, biomass. And, of course, this could rise to very large uh, data sets as well. So imaging can include, you know, CAT scans, PET scans, also things under a microscope, for sure. example? That, sure. Those are all examples of imaging? Yeah. Well, I mean, imaging is a very broad uh, discipline. I mean, it ranges from just taking a picture of you at, you know, um, I guess meter scale or even I guess if you think of it very broadly, even astronomy or, you know, when you're imaging, you know, very far off things at a huge scale – to um, super high-resolution microscopy where you actually would image a molecule. And that's actually a a big part of a lot of these disciplines where people are, uh, in addition to sequencing molecules, they're taking pictures of them and looking at how they operate and so forth. And that's another type of imaging. It's a whole – it's a very broad uh, range of of, – Techniques and modalities. Hmm. So, did you come to this field uh, through a biology uh, door or a math door or both? Well, not not really. I you know when I was um, 
uh, sort of young. I mean, this is now a while ago. I was really I was always interested in science, and you know, I was initially very interested in physics and physical sciences. You know, and I was very interested in kind of a very quantitative view of um, nature and, and stuff. And, you know, I, I sort of thought, oh, you know, there's maybe less um, opportunities, less interesting questions in this discipline. So I kind of transitioned into more biological sciences. You know, in my PhD, I first kind of went in more chemistry uh, type direction, chemistry, biophysics, and so forth. And, you know, I still do a lot of that type of stuff, you know, modeling molecules and thinking about how they work in a very physical sense. But uh, somewhere when in my, I guess, um, late training when I was a postdoc and actually early faculty member, I started to see, I think genomics started to come about and people started to really think about this co- huge collections of data. And it just seemed extremely exciting, you know what I'm saying, as so I kind of got into that. And, you know, first I was doing this not in a, as much a health context because people weren't um, sequencing genomes initially in a health context. They were sequencing the worm genome or some, you know, model organism genome and so forth. But, you know, as times went on, uh, these technologies have moved more and more into a health context. And now that's really where my uh, focus is, you know, in, in more of a uh, health context, both with uh, sequencing, but also other, you know, modeling types of techniques and so forth. Hmm. From worms to cancer. Very interesting. <laughs> right now, we've got to take a short break for a medical minute. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working to change how cancer is treated with personalized medicine. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about colorectal cancer. When detected early, colorectal cancer is easily treated and highly curable. And as a result, it's recommended that men and women over the age of 50 have regular colonoscopies to screen for the disease. Tumor gene analysis has helped improve management of colorectal cancer by identifying the patients most likely to benefit from chemotherapy and newer targeted agents, resulting in more patient-specific treatments. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore. I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Mark Gerstein. We've been discussing cancer genomics and precision medicine, but really we've been talking more about um, big data in our world. So, Mark, uh, maybe um, moving along, you can describe for our listeners, you know, what's involved in sequencing a genome. I mean, that was a big deal 20 years ago. Nobody knew if it was going to happen, right? The human genome was like a huge deal. And now, you know, pay 300 bucks and get, well, you know, 50 bucks and get 23 and me, which I realize isn't a whole genome, but it's still pretty amazing. Um, so what do these, like, what happens? What do these machines do? And where does the data come in? And what do you do? And what's that all about? So um, for sequencing a genome, first, first I'll tell you a little about sequencing the germline genome or the kind of normal genome. And that's what you're alluding to with the 23 and me and so forth. And there's a range of technologies available for people now. I mean, the simplest is what's called the CHIPS, which is what 23andMe does, and for virtually nothing you get. Not your genome sequence, but a good approximation of of the uh, genome, ranging to whole genome sequencing, which you can get for your germline genome for a little bit less than a thousand bucks now and so forth. Um, you know, and the high level of what, is what happens to your genomes, these big molecules, and the molecules kind of get uh, cut up into little bits. These are called reads, and then they, they're just read out as chemicals, and then they're put back together again. And you, 
you always think of the genome relative to the reference. So you talk not so much of your genome, but the variants you have relative to the reference genome. And the average person in the germline genome has about three to four million sort of bases that are changed. That's called SNP, single nucleotide polymorphism. Three to four million that are different than the gold standard. Yeah, well, yeah, or the reference. I wouldn't say, say gold <laughs> standard is maybe a little elevated, but the reference, you know, the reference genome. And they also have, um, you know, bigger blocks, uh, you know, change what they call um, structural variants or insertions and deletions. And that's the germline genome. And, you know, that, like I said, is a pretty well understood uh, thing. And, you know, to some degree, what 23andMe is selling as a, a service, and you can get that type of thing uh, done in other contexts. Now, the cancer genome is a little bit more complicated. Um, there, you know, obviously, we're... Um, not sequencing the, for the germline variants, but we have to know where the germline variants is to kind of remove them out, but we're sequencing for the specific somatic variants that a cancer cell has acquired, and so we obviously have to have a sample of the cancer of the tumor, and we sequence that, and often that, the sequence is a little harder for that. I mean, it usually has to be sequenced at much greater depth, so we can really be sure um, the variant is there in the tumor and not in the normal and so forth. Um, and there's a lot of uh, rearrangements of the genome, pretty dramatic in cancer, that mean really assembling the entire cancer genome and really knowing it accurately is still a, a research challenge. I mean, it's, it's considerably harder than for the um, germline genome. But we can get a lot uh, about the cancer genome now, and that's what people are uh, doing. And, you know, there's a lot of companies that, uh, like 23andMe, that are very oriented towards the uh, cancer genome, for instance, Foundation uh, Medicine of uh, Massachusetts, they're doing that. Now, often, they don't focus on the whole genome. You know, they, they want to sort of zoom in on bits of it. You know, they'll look at a panel of uh, genes that are associated with cancer, or they'll do your exome, you know, just what's called your um, the protein coding regions of your gene genome, but or some sort of part of it and so forth. And, and, and so what happens when you do, uh, when you get your... Um, germline genome or your cancer genome back, the simple thing you get is you get just this list of variants. And for your germline, it's going to be, like I said, millions, you know, it's four four million variants, you know, and so forth. And um, for your cancer genome varies much more widely depending on the cancer. It could be down at like 500 variants, but or it could be up at 100,000. Yes, let's take 5,000 uh, variants in a cancer genome. And that's, notice how that's like a full three orders of magnitude less than the, you know, uh, germline genome. And you get these lists of variants, and then uh, people want to um, understand the variants. And one of the first things they do with your variants to understand them is they kind of put them through the lens of the database, you know, and that's kind of what I do, and they put them in context, you know, what people have seen. And so, for instance, for the germline, gen- uh, the germline variants, they'll fractionate them into what's called common variants and rare ones, okay? So common ones are variants that we see often in the population, rare ones not so much. And the very fact that something is common usually means it doesn't have that dramatic of effect, because like I said, if it was, if it, you know, caused you to drop dead, immediately you probably wouldn't have it in lots of people in the population. It has more of a modulating effect. Now, in cancer, there's a, a similar division, and it's not so much between uh, common and rare, it's between um, what's called driver and passenger. And it, what happens is, if in a lot of cancers, you see a mutation at a particular spot, actually the commonness here usually means that mutation is really driving a cancer forward. It's positively selected, and they're, they're really strong mutations. Because most breast cancers may have it, or most lung cancers may have it, or many, is that Yes, why? yes, they're very common. And, and, and the, the, the dogma or the belief is that most of the other mutations are kind of 
collateral damage in the you know cell replicating wildly or you know copying itself in a strange way in their passengers they're kind of carried along mm -hmm. uh, and so forth and so those are the so the first thing you'd kind of do is take your mutations and kind of sort them into different groups in relation to um, you know the database and then people would tend to analyze them you know they'll take your um, for your germline, they'll take your common variants and they'll look up, you know, oh, you know, do you have a variant that lots of people have shared that say, let's, let's take some innocuous ones that are, say, associated with eye color, like I think OCT2 is associated with eye color or your lactase, you know, variant, which is associated with whether you can digest milk or, you know, for other variants, of course, they'll look at are, you know, maybe your uh, LDR um, uh, variant, which is associated with heart disease or there's uh, dopamine receptors associated with, say, mental health, which, you know, they... they don't have strong proliferates, but they're associated in a weak way with these diseases. And then some of the rarer germline variants have a little bit stronger effects. Maybe you've heard of the um, APOE variants that are associated with Alzheimer's disease. That's a pretty well-known uh, variant. And then, you know, there's the BRCA variants associated with cancer and so forth. And, you know, the same game is happening in the somatic context. You know, people are sorting through. They're looking at, oh, you know, do you have a, a variant in this particular gene that's, you know, associated with a particular pathway that maybe we have a drug for, that we know what it does. You know, fam very famous uh, variants would be, for instance, for uh, leukemia, there's the BCR-ABLE variant uh, that's um, associated with a particular type of leukemia called CML that is very well treatable by a particular drug, a tyrosine kinase inhibitor uh, drug that people uh, tend to prescribe called Gleevec, which is very famous, or they'll look for particular mutations in, like, say, the uh, EGFR um, gene and so forth. And, you know, those are the types of things uh, people uh, do initially. And that, that stuff I'm talking about now is really what the analyst, uh, someone like myself, is doing with the uh, variants um, uh, analyzing them. And we're thinking, of course, more and more that's going to get packaged into some product or something that, you know, the doctor would would serve to someone in the framework of a kind of clinical setting where they would say, you know, you have these variants, we think they're uh, important to your health. Um, and, and one of my uh, personal uh, things is I actually think that uh, genomics is really going to transform biology very much in the future because in the past, you know, we've come to genomics and all this big data and all this type of stuff kind of as a footnote at the end, you know, we'd study bio one, you know, what's a cell or something like that. And, you know, at the very end of, you know, all this study, we'd say, oh, we could sequence the genome. But I think what's going to happen in the future very much is you're really going to have a situation where um, people are going to go to front basic biology in the framework of, oh, their genome's going to be sequenced. They're going to talk to a doctor and the doctor's going to say, you have these variants, you know, that maybe they have they're, you know, you have cancer, they're really major in your cancer, or they, just in terms of your germline, these are important variants that you have to think about. And then people are going to be like, well, what is that? You know, what do these things do? And they're going to want to understand what these variants mean. And the way they understand that is they think of these variants actually um, are variants on molecules, right, that, that do things, they're molecular machines, and they're going to go take a deep dive into what happens in this uh, molecular biological world. Right, and that seems like a lot to ask of patients to, or non-patients, just healthy people to, to comprehend. If we're talking about germline things that may or may not be associated with a variety of future diseases, right? Yes and no. I mean, I I don't think everyone's going to be taking the deep dive and so forth. But I I could you know when when it's about you, you get much more interested. I mean, I think a lot of the. Um, 
the disinterest sometimes in scientific questions is it seems very removed from your being. And, you know, I think one of the missions of a company like 23andMe is really to personalize genomics. You know, they're like, well, how, how are, you know, what is you? You know, how, what, what are your um, being? What is it like? And how is it related to the variants you have? And people, people are interested in that. Like a famous variant also that is... Um, you know, very mild in effect is these variants in this actin 3 gene, which is associated with the how much your muscles twitch uh, when you run. And, you know, distance runner, not distance runner, sprinter, you know, it's one of these things where if you're into sports, it's kind of fun, you know, night snow. But, it, but I think the thing is, if it's you, it means a lot more than if it's, you know, just some abstracted idea. Yeah, I have to say the 23andMe thinks that I'm not a sun sneezer, and I'm <laughs> absolutely a sun sneezer. Apparently, that's a that's a genetic trait of people who see light and sneeze. Wow, oculus sneeze reflex or something like that. Ooh. Yeah, but but they got it wrong. But uh, but they do know that I'm Ashkenazi Jewish, 99 plus percent or something like that, um, which is fascinating. Yeah, I think Ancestry has done a really good job in their marketing. I mean, I don't know if you've seen any of the ads about these people who thought they were Native American, but they're really Scottish. And, you know, in some ways, who cares? But but it is, you know, I think it's part of feel, people feeling, I don't know, what they are and connected to the world and kind of this whole relational thing that I think people may be looking for. Obviously not medical, but I think it's kind of an interesting phenomenon. Sure. I mean, well, I mean, you know, it, for many people, ancestry is kind of a fun thing. But, you know, for some people, it becomes a very cosmic issue. You know, I mean, there's obviously some countries, some groups where their ancestry and their, you know, exactly how they sit relative to other populations is of great cosmic significance. And, you know, it's a big deal if, you know, they realize they're not an ex or, you know, they or they, they grew up, they thought they were an ex. They're not, you know, and so forth. And If, and, if their whole self-concept is based on that, huh? Interesting. Yeah. Then it gets to, like, what does it mean to be a member of a group and does it have to be genetic? That's a whole other kind of philosophical question. I have to think that, that for a lot of these things, uh, the, the more common medical usages as well as these lay usages, there must be, like, computer algorithms. I mean, you don't sit with every patient sample that comes through the Genome Center here and go through it individually, do you, as a – well, I mean, How's I think the, the idea would be eventually there'd be this kind of hybrid, you know, of kind of, I mean, there's always going to be individual interactions, anything to do with clinical medicine. I, I can't imagine, you know, it's going to be just kind of the, uh, how should I say, the Google search report. I mean, I think there's obviously you're going to want someone to talk to you about it. But I, I think there's obviously a lot of computer processing to get that get that list of you know, say four million for the germline, and then to sift through it to get, you know, maybe um, a, a group to talk about. Now, also, I think I have to say that the the early days of um, uh, germline genomics and, to some degree, somatic genomics have really focused on like a variant in this particular gene and so forth. And you know, I think germline genomics is kind of moving a little bit away from that and moving towards what they call polygenic scores, and basically means somehow adding up a lot of your variants into some overall score, like your hypertension score, you know, from all your particular right. variants or your diabetes score. And that's a little bit more abstract um, than, uh, you know, just a variant in a particular gene. Um, but I, I think they're of greater predictive value. And so I could see, you know, again, you get all your variants and then someone runs some score algorithms on these and they give you, you know, some 
scores for your chance. You know, it's like rainy day, you know, chance of, um, you know, getting uh, this particular disease or that particular disease. And, you know, you have to think about that stuff. It's, it's very much like I think also where, you know, um, it used to be people would think about, oh, you know, I, I don't want to have a heart attack. You know, I don't want to have a coronary event. And they think about that now, but they also think more about these predictors. You know, they'll be like, I, I really want to keep my cholesterol down. You know, I want to, you know, keep my body fat down. And they're, they're thinking about these um, intermediate indicators. And I, I think that's the, you know, they'll be thinking about their, um, you know, the, these scores they'll get from these various tests and how they play into their, um, their being and their lifestyle and so forth. Well, it's interesting because to some extent, um, for example, you bring up uh, coronary disease and, uh, you know, there have been these calcium scores uh, for some time that are done by CT scan. And again, I'd just be interested in knowing sort of what impact that has on on patients' behaviors if they know they have a calcium score that predicts for heart disease. Do they do anything differently because of that? Well, I mean, there's been a lot of, um, I would say, research or psychological research on, you know, what's the value of this? You know, what do people do? I mean, a lot of... um, you know, when you try to roll this out into kind of a mass market thing, I mean, that's a whole dis- different discussion. You know, will will people change their habits, or, or or can you change your habits, or or is it just you're going to get this information and just worry all the time? I mean, a lot a lot of people <laughs> yeah. criticize this because they say that you know, in the end, what does the doctor say? They say, well, you just exercise more, you know, just eat less, exercise more. You know, it's sort of obvious what they usually say, and those things you probably knew before you get, got to the doctor. Now you have all this additional information just to worry about. And that often isn't really that useful for people. And I think that's a fair criticism of uh, germline genomics. Now, at no precision oncology, it's a little different. I think because those mutations are a little stronger, not only are the mutations are strong, but the drugs that people are getting are really stronger drugs too, that there's, there's really more of a sense of tailoring that treatment to those mutations in a more d- direct way. Dr. Mark Gerstein is Albert L. Williams Professor of Biomedical Informatics and Professor of Molecular Biophysics and Biochemistry, of Computer Science, and of Statistics and Data Science at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.